G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Revelation, I've got a bit of an extended introduction as we begin a, a new series in the book of Revelation, um, which is such a, a fascinating book. Um, so come back in time with me if you could, if you would please, um, to a moment in the Christian church history, I suppose, when I suspect it all seemed to hang by a bit of a thread. Uh, and perhaps it was the very end of the church itself. Come back with me to a time, can you imagine it? When Jesus and Christianity and the church seemed a small and a silly thing, a frail and a feeble thing indeed, likely very soon to fail, we must only suppose. Uh, could anyone reasonably expect it to last another generation? Really? Perhaps the world might soon be rid of it forever. Can you imagine an age like that? Of course you can. Uh, come back with me to the mid-90s AD, as in nearly 2,000 years ago. Uh, the book of Revelation was written, you see, by the last man standing of the 12 apostles, or I suppose we should say 11 after Judas's demise, or 12 once Paul came back, uh, came aboard. James, of course, was the first to go, and we read about his um, end in uh, the early chapters of the book of Acts, and one by one they'd been picked off, the 12, one by one. And uh, until even Paul had long since met a grisly end at the hands of Rome. Until only John remained. Here he is, writing the book of Revelation. John, such as he was, imprisoned or at least exiled on the island of Patmos, isolated by design to prevent him from troubling the world any longer with his ravings about a risen Messiah. So by the mid-90s, uh, let's just try and place it in world history, Nero, uh, bloodthirsty Nero, had come and gone with his bloodlust against the Christians in Rome, and now Emperor Domitian was taking something of a more systematic approach to eradicating the empire of Christian kind, or at least turning the screws on very tightly. How long could they realistically last? Really? How long... Uh, how could you expect the Christian church to withstand the might of imperial Rome, which will surely outlive us all, won't it? For that matter, how can you expect to stand against the tide of religious paganism with its rich and varied history? How long can you expect to last alone in a vast and hostile world that grows weary of Jesus and his stubborn little followers? Folks, this week, uh, so we begin this series in the book of Revelation today, penned by John, last of the 12, last of our New Testament scriptures, and our series is just going to focus on these two chapters here, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, but John, or should I say Jesus, back there in chapter 1, um, he sets the scene before we even get to the letters to the churches. He sets the scene for us today. Right at the moment when Christianity seemed a feeble and surely failed enterprise in history, Jesus draws back the veil, do you see, to remind us of what's really real, to give us the grand picture of what's really going on. And I think the image is supposed to be somewhat terrifying, actually. Uh, so you read it there from chapter 1, verse 12. Just flick back a page in your Bible if it's on the previous page, chapter 1, verse 12 of Revelation. Uh, John uh, describing what he sees. I turned around, John says... 
to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore what you've seen. What is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now friends, in our day, I think it's easy to imagine that we stand at or at least near uh, the end of Christian history. Now, we might step back and say, of course, that's not going to happen, but I think it's easy for us to feel that way, that we stand at or near the end of Christian history. For how can we hope, feeble little us, to stand against the tide, to last in such a vast and hostile, often, world, withstand its disdain and its disinterest? Will we last another generation? Will we? Realistically, will we last the one beyond that? This month, I mean for us to see that the shoe is very much on the other foot. What's real is this. The risen Lord Jesus Christ reigns in fearsome glory and he walks effortlessly among his churches as civilizations rise and fall, as rulers fight and fade away, as haters hate and then die in their hatred... He yet lives forever, seemingly effortlessly now, the first and the last, the living one. Now, is he the reality by which we live our lives? Is Christ the reality by which we lead our church here together? Is this risen and reigning Lord the lens through which we see our dying world? Is his the cause to which we give ourselves in an age that will one day be but a memory? but for the saving influence of the gospel on its people. Uh, The book of Revelation reveals the reality that the risen Christ reigns and he means for his seven churches to reflect that fact. So Revelation 1 verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written because the time is near. Let's pray as we come to Revelation 2 and the church in Ephesus now. Our Father God in heaven, we confess that uh, in, in so many ways we are children of our generation, of an age with little regard for the eternity and glory and immense power of the God who holds life and death and heaven and hell and history and time in your very hands. We proudly come to think that we're it. We tend to think that history has arrived now that we are here. Our time and our intelligence and our culture and our wisdom and our achievements as if they will not one day slide into history and be forgotten. 
whereas the risen Lord Jesus lives on. God, give us that perspective, would you please? He reigns. And before him, our pride and our arrogance and our ignorance look not only sad and sinful, but they also look silly. God, what fools we are to disregard the one who walks among the lampstands of his churches and commands his angels at will and who will direct history to the very ends that please him. So, Father, would you continue this morning, please, to reveal yourself, to remind us, and to revive us. Through Jesus Christ, we ask it, please. Amen. Friends, I'd like to begin here as we turn to chapter 2. Please keep Revelation chapter 2 in front of you. Um, What on earth went wrong in Ephesus? What on earth went wrong in Ephesus? And more troublingly, I suppose, could that same thing ever go wrong with us? What went wrong in Ephesus? Are we headed the same way? So just hold your finger, as I said, in Ephesus, uh, sorry, in, uh, in the, the letter to the Ephesians in, in uh, Revelation chapter 2. But turn back with me, could you please just do this, to Ephesians in your Bibles, uh, still in the New Testament, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 1 and 2, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians... Ephesians and chapter 6, turn with me there, could you please? I just want us to see something as a point of contrast. So Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, um, as I said, some decades earlier, and I just want us to look at Paul's closing words to that church in Asia Minor. Have you got it there now? Revelation, sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23, where the Apostle Paul wrote, Peace to the brothers and sisters, he's just closing off his letter, you understand, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, have a look at this, Ephesians 6 verse 24, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And I wonder if Paul had lived to see Revelation chapter 2 written, whether he'd have rather wished that he could retract that sentence, those final words, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You will love him forever, won't you? All of your days, there's not a question in my mind, such is your undying zeal and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And then we read Revelation 2 verse 4, what on earth went wrong in Ephesus, folks? Revelation 2 verse 4, where the Lord Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Once so clear and so bright, firm and faithful in their walk with the Lord, what happened? But for us today, how do we know we're not headed the same way? Can we be sure? Are we, uh, together I mean, are we sure, are we perhaps a little less full of the undying love that we had at first for the Lord Jesus? The risen Lord gives them four, four things. This is the remainder of our sermon this morning, four focused fundamentals to find their first love afresh there in Ephesus. Yeah, lots of Fs. Four focused fundamentals to find their first love afresh. Here they are, they need to rely, they need to remember, they need to repent, they need to be revived. Rely, remember, repent, revive. The risen Lord who reigns gives four focused fundamentals to find afresh their first love and the first is to rely. And I wonder, can we relate to this one particularly, brothers and sisters? 
Because it sure looks to me like the church in Ephesus had a hard time relying on Jesus. Why? Because they had become so accustomed to relying on themselves. Do you know anyone like that? Jesus knew an entire churchload of them in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hands, right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Could I say, if you know anyone like these Ephesians, at least from the first three verses there, uh, we'll get to verse four in a minute, the story will change there, but if you know anyone like these Ephesians in our congregation, could you please nominate them for being an elder in our church? Because, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I know, but who do we want as elders? We want, don't we, guys who know how to work. Now, I might not be selling the role particularly, but uh, who aren't afraid to roll up their sleeves, who know that, expect that it's going to be hard work. Who do we want as elders? We want men who know the gospel, don't we, who contend for it, who can tell falsehood from truth, who are willing to wrestle with the truth, handle the word of truth, uh, delineate between truth and error, who know godliness from evil, verse 2. I want to be led by men in this congregation for whom, yes, the road is long, but they mean to travel it with us together. Verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I don't think there was a problem finding elders in Ephesus, was there? Please don't misunderstand me. As Jesus begins his survey of the churches in around Asia Minor and he sort of does a circuit, he doesn't begin with a wicked, stupid, lazy church of layabout, no-hopers with nothing. No, he begins with a church chock-a-block full of industrious, resourceful, active, devoted, able men and women. Oh, to have a church full of Ephesians. What a magnificent lot there. And I'm glad to say, I think we do in so many ways. But here's the question. On whom do they rely? On whom do we rely? To the degree that we're like them. I think the reminder in verse 1 is probably very apt for anyone who gets to thinking that the church, in the end, comes down to them and their hard work and their perseverance and their sticking at it. It comes down to me and it comes down to you because we're it. Have a look at the reminder, the way Jesus introduces himself. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds and your hard work and all of the rest. Now, friends, here comes the sobering thought. Do you believe a church could fight and stand 
and contend for the truth of the gospel, could slog it out in a culture that makes being a Christian hard at a time when nothing seems to be going your way, could devote themselves to the most noble and upright and admirable lives in their culture and yet lose love altogether. Can you imagine such a church? Have you ever seen such a church? Have we ever been such a church? Remember, secondly, says Jesus, you need to rely on on me, on Jesus, you need to remember, cast your minds back, perhaps closer to Paul's time. So pick it up from verse 3 with me, if you could please. Revelation 2, verse 3. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary yet. Verse 4. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. That phrase there, let let me ask, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Have you ever experienced that? Have have you ever recognised that in yourself? I was surprised to learn there are sort of three major ways that that um, little sentence there, three plausible ways to take Christ's criticism of the Ephesians. Three. Uh, The first is probably the one that you'd expect. It's the forsaking of a first love, uh, as in their first, their initial love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of the, you might say that the kind of forsaking of a first love that uh, happens in marriages from time to time or in relationships. Hasn't your love grown cold for the one, the person for whom you had such love at first, your, your affections for Christ Jesus? Have you forsaken that? Do you still love him as you did at the beginning? Um, the Christian life can evolve, or should I say devolve, a bit like a marriage, can't it? You go through different seasons, don't you? And I know that the, the, the marriage is hard now, in this season... In this stage, it's hard, say, when when the kids are young, so demanding, get so little time together. It's hard when the money's tight. It's hard when your your health or your mind starts cracking or failing or your spouse's does. It's hard when the house isn't working out and you're constantly living in one another's pockets. It's hard when you, you can't help but see the very worst of his father in him. Or when you start to sound like your mother. Do you remember? Can't you remember the woman that you fell in love with? Can't you remember the man who won your heart? Perhaps he's still there. Do you remember? It's the first way, and I think in some ways the the most sort of immediate plain reading is probably the one that you thought of, isn't it? Uh, And certainly the one I thought of as I first read that verse. But one of the best thinkers I know on Revelation says, actually, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about them forsaking their first love. No, the first love of the Ephesians, in in this thinker's uh, mind, the the first love of the Ephesians, this lampstand of a church, this light source in the dark there in Asia Minor, in a cold and dark world was that they used to love doing what? Shining and bearing witness to the world with the light of Jesus. But now, well, they've turned inward, haven't they? 
What does Jesus say elsewhere in John's writings? So John 13, for example, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And and so the one who holds the bright shining stars in his hands, who walks among the lampstands, the burning lampstands in the dark world, says, I'm going to come and take your lampstand away because you've stopped acting like a lampstand. You're not a church anymore. You used to love to shine my light to the world. You've made my church cold and dead. Oh, efficient and correct. And you get things done, but without a spark of my gospel for the world anymore. What good are you? Could it be that, friends? Brothers and sisters, I think it's actually neither of those. Uh, They may be crummy witnesses to the world, and I suspect they probably are being if they've lost uh, this love that they've lost. Uh, They may have let their hearts for Jesus come off the boil a bit. But the love that they've forsaken, if you have a look at the verses, it seems to me is a love that Jesus intends for them to do. You see it in the next verse. It's an action. It's doable. It's an expression. So, as is so often in the case of, with John's writings, I think they have lost their love for one another, which may indeed have its roots back in their love for him, but could that be their first love, their love for one another, that first expression of Christian love to one another? John 13, for instance, again within John's writing, a new command I give you, said Jesus to his disciples, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, all all three are linked. We're just sort of trying to diagnose which one has gone wrong in Ephesus. All three are linked. Jesus' love for them and their love for Jesus, their love for one another and their love for witnessing to the world. Or 1 John chapter 3, this is how you know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Or 1 John chapter 4. You you understand John wrote Revelation and he wrote John's Gospel and he wrote John's letters. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love his brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. What I want to ask you is, can you remember a time in your life where you used to love your fellow Christians more heartily, more actively, more uh, personally, more practically, then, says Jesus, you know what to do. Have a look at verse 4 again. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who were the Nicolaitans and what exactly was their so-called... Uh, loving practices which were actually hateful in the in the eyes of Jesus, no doubt some fake and phony and um, thin imitation of love, uh, we don't know. <laughs> in short, that's almost all that we know of them. They're mentioned again down in verse 15 and we'll come to that uh, next or in a couple of weeks' time. 
But I think Jesus calls a hard-working church to have a heart, doesn't he? It contains within it what I suspect is the great and subtle challenge of church growth for us in our day. I wonder if you'd agree. Because to a hard-working, sharp-minded, long-suffering, fiercely diligent church there in Ephesus, what does Jesus say? Does he say, guys, you just need to lighten up. You're working too hard. You just need, you need to settle down. It's not worth pushing yourself so hard for the cause of the gospel. Just don't worry about it so much. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't want them to stop, but he does want them to restart. Now, let me put this in practical terms. It seems to me that the church in Ephesus, they would have known a thing or two about how to start a youth ministry, wouldn't they? They were diligent. They wouldn't have been afraid of putting in the long hours. Uh, You couldn't pull the wool over their eyes with wonky teaching or or, uh, woo them into dark alleys of, of, uh, of desire or whatever. It seems to me that they could have churned out well-trained um, church planters and ministry leaders and elders and deacons. They'd have trained, they'd have equipped, they'd have uh, you know, grilled and assessed and planned and they would have done better than every other church in their area in those things, no doubt. Did Jesus want them to stop? Brothers and sisters, I want to see us keep growing here at Good News Church. And I think Jesus wants us to keep growing here at Good News Church. And I think he wants us to give ourselves to the maturing of believers through a vibrant ministry of the word, through faithful lives of wisdom, with long hours and significant sacrifice. But if we lose love for one another, then what have we become? Um, The late, great John Stott put it like this. He said, Christ's warning in Ephesus is just as appropriate for us today. Our own church's light will be extinguished if we stubbornly persevere in refusal to love Christ. Have a listen to this. He says, the church has no light without love. Only when its love burns can its light shine. Many churches today, he says, have ceased to truly exist. Their buildings remain intact, their ministers minister and the congregations congregate, but their lampstands have been removed. The church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has no light because it has no love. Let us heed this warning before it is too late. Could we just personally take stock together for a moment? Does all of my energy here at church come from that rich store of Christ's love for me? Do I, do you, give myself to godliness and the pursuit of it, dogged in my own life? Not out of cold duty, but partly but in love, to my brothers and sisters for whom Christ laid down his life? Do I strive, even in my private devotions or in wrestling in Bible study with one another or on my own, do I sweat over my family devotions because nothing thrills me more than to see the lights come on 
in the lives of my brothers and sisters. Nothing thrills me more than the rejoicing in heaven over the souls saved and matured toward Christ-likeness. Or has it all grown cold for the things of the Lord? Do I do it? I don't know why I do it anymore. The church has no light without love. Only when its love burns can its light shine. Do the things you did at first. Love the people around you in the name of Christ and like he has loved you. Will you do that? Will will we see one another in that light? Will we see that light in them? Otherwise, Jesus says, I will come and remove your lampstand. But thankfully, of course, that's not Christ's intention for Ephesus or for us or for anyone else, isn't it? Is it? That's not his intention. And church history actually tells us that for at least the next hundred years or so in Ephesus, um, happily, that's not what happened. They, didn't, like, they came back to their first love. Uh, the same can't be said a few hundred years on, but nevertheless. Anyway, uh, f- so finally then, we need to, yes, rely on him, not on ourselves. We need to remember Uh, Our first love, we need to repent, turn around and actually do those acts of love toward one another and put that ahead. Uh, But he is the one who will revive. He will revive life from death, the risen uh, from the grave, the children he loves to the paradise that he has prepared. Verse 7, please read that last verse with me, would you please? where Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's close with this. O church of God who long, don't we, for a fuller life, for a friendlier world, refreshed from the futility that we feel at times, free from the fight. Long for it. Long to be back in Eden where we belong. The Lord Jesus has a gift for you. Will you keep that before your eyes each day? The one who knows death intimately and yet lives. The one who holds the keys, he says, to our graves, to yours. And he intends that you live. The one who wants to feed you from the tree of life for a dying world. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we do really long to be a shining lamp and a beaming light for the gospel of your Son to this world all around us in darkness. Even right here in Hobart, there are, God, there are too few people who know of the love of Jesus for them, who know of his death and know of his life and the love that drove him to hell and back for us at the cross. Father, we want to shine that light in the way that we love one another, in the way that we live and strive together, in the way that we respond when things go bad when people disappoint us, in the way that we make up and forgive and repair and repent. Father, those of us who um, struggle and strive 
and want to make church happen with our own muscle and endurance and strength and perseverance and brains or whatever it is, God, would you forgive us? Teach us to rely on Christ. For those of us who would perhaps set love against diligence and can't seem to harmonise or reconcile them, play them off against one another, God, would you reach us to repent, to renew our love, show us what repentance looks like in active practice, please. And Father, we do pray it for our own good and our own health as a church, but also for the glory of Jesus in and through and beyond us. May we, the church of the risen and reigning Jesus here at Good News, light our little part of the world with his love. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.